I and actually talk about I'm this so all thrilled that you're one of our one of, one of our co-authors. Absolutely, and you're really good at marketing because I think you're going to help us blow off the doors <laughs> on marketing all the way today through our Absolutely. new book. <laughs> oh, it's going to be fun too when that book comes out. Let me tell you, it's going to be a blast. But thank you, Des, because your your insights have been great. So thank you for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, Wendy, looks like we're at the end of our week, but uh, you and I get to do it again next week. Isn't that fun? So please come join us again next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye now. Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time. But since we're global, you'll have to check the time for you. And you can catch all of our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com and be sure to download our new app for iPhone and Android and then you can well I've always been using my phone I just go on my web browser go to PRN and then plug it into my car radio or my earphones but now you can go get us directly from our uh, PRN app and uh One by one, we're putting all of our back shows on the app as well. So today, I had a bunch of stuff I wanted to talk about, starting with, I want to see the movie The Darkest Hour. My wife's a big Gary Oldman fan. So Gary Oldman plays Winston Churchill, and my wife is a serious Gary Oldman fan, and she's watching a clip of the movie, and she says, well, where is he? Uh, His makeup to become the portly, bald, uh, jowly Winston Churchill is unbelievable. I'm sure there's there's one Oscar right there <laughs> for makeup, and, and we'll see if Gary Oldman gets the Oscar for this uh, for this role. And we saw it uh, at a downtown screening where Gary Oldman was a guest. He's out there promoting for the awards, and then they because. It's that season. <clears throat> the uh, they've been running Ticker Taylor Soldier Spy with Gary Oldman on uh, TV, and so I watched that. And I'm a bigger fan of. Uh, let's see, the movie is 2011, and I'm a big. I actually have to confess not to have read the Le Carre books. Uh, I did read one of them. I think uh, Spyro came in from the cold. But Smiley is uh, a hero of many people. 
And people who spent decades with Smiley in the books, you know, are always discussing the appropriateness of various actors. And what I think was one of the great <clears throat> miniseries was Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy with Alec Guinness playing uh, Smiley, who's the uh, the British spy, and Carla is his great European, I think he's East German, um, uh, rival. And, and spoiler alert, uh, Smiley gets Carla in the end after many episodes of the miniseries and books. But people who were serious fans, you know, had, had to really adjust to Alec Guinness playing the role. Because uh, LeCarre describes Smiley as like a toad, <laughs> not a very attractive person. And, you know, Alec Guinness, who you may know as Obi-Wan Kenobi, is kind of tall and thin. So, but anyway, uh, LeCarre even adjusted his, uh, port- his descriptions of Smiley in subsequent books to accommodate the the Alec Guinness interpretation. And all this led me to think about the role that actors play in our lives. You know, there'll be some actor like uh, John Wayne, who you see as a child in in Westerns, and then <clears throat> there's the arc of your life, my life, and the arc of the actor's career, and you're sort of they're with you through uh, these periods of your life in various roles and in various different ways. For example, uh, Gary Oldman, who plays the, one of the bad guys in Fifth Element and then plays Smiley and then plays Winston Churchill. I mean, there is a demonstration of acting breadth. And we get something similar from the breath that Alec Guinness is able to put out. I first saw him as a little kid. My parents took me to see the movie in The Man in White, The Man in the White Suit. I've mentioned that movie before. Charming, charming movie. It's one of those, uh, you know, immediately after the war British movies and, you know, Britain is kind of depressed after the war. They came out of World War II uh, very much in debt, having lost their empire, uh, trying to make socialism work, flailing for a national identity. And, and we get Terry Thomas comedies in that period, and we get some uh, Alec Guinness continuing his career. I mean, uh, movies in the 30s and 40s as well that I didn't see, but I've seen on TV. <clears throat> but anyway, so there he is in uh, Man in the White Suit, uh, a young man, uh, you know, kind of buffeted about by forces, but uh, quite uh, his own person. And then later we get such roles as, um, well, <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi in uh, Star Wars. And I remember going to the first screening of Star Wars. I was, I was um, at George Lucas's place when he was putting it together. He had all these Ravel spaceship models all around his uh, study in his 
little house that um, he and his wife were in before they got divorced. And <clears throat> we spent a day uh, on a bicycling trip around Marin County. And being somewhat lazy myself, we had, oh, about six bicyclists, two dogs, and a very big van. And so at any point you wanted to stop bicycling, you could toss your bike in the back of the van and uh, drive for a while. And so I had some uh, opportunity to chat with George about what he was doing in the movie. So I was anxious to be there uh, in its first screening in New York. I was uptown, uh, some uptown theater. I don't know if it's still there anymore. And the moment the titles come on, you know, with that scroll of uh, in a, what is it, in a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago, et cetera, the audience just burst out in cheers. Lucas was out of the country. <laughs> he had thought the movie was going to be such a disaster. He didn't want to be around when it happened. And, uh, and then, interestingly, my wife and I, have been following the audio books of uh, Carrie Fisher, who's Princess Leia in the movies. So there's Princess Leia, and she had done something, maybe shampoo, I didn't see that. Uh, but there's this character, and then we sort of follow her through her career and her um, struggles with addiction, her novels, her plays, her screenplays. She really did pretty well for herself from coming from, uh, <laughs> you know, a Hollywood difficult background, uh, being Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds' daughter. Anyway, um, and we were really struck when she died, and then Debbie Reynolds died uh, shortly thereafter, her mother. She said, I want to be with Carrie. And so, you know, we get these uh, audio books read by Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. And you sort of recall those periods of your life when, oh, yeah, when they were making this movie, what was I doing? I remember seeing that movie. Uh, I think about that when I think about the movie La Dolce Vita, which is one of my favorite movies, uh, Fellini. And... Um, forgetting the star's name now. But anyway, I saw La Dolce Vita when it first came out in this country is a year later than in Italy. And it was, you know, what everybody in my circles wanted to be, sort of dissolute on the Via Veneto in, uh, uh, in Rome and hanging out in, you know, those cafes and all that. And then you see the movie over the years. And so there's Marcello, and there's a beautiful essay about the movie by uh, Roger Ebert. It's collected in his book, uh, 100 Great Movies, or something like that. Strongly recommend him. I, I, you know, maybe, um, hey, anything you want to say about anything we're saying, call in 888 874 4 888. And call in with, uh, starting with, who do you recommend for a movie critic? I mean, I grew up with Pauline Kael and then Roger Ebert. And, you know, is anybody readable? Anybody speaking intelligently about movies? Anyway, 
this beautiful essay by Roger Ebert about La Dolce Vita. And, you know, Dolce Vita was part of a wave from particularly uh, three or four directors, uh, Fellini, La Dolce Vita, um, the Swedish director, what's his name, Igmar Bergman, Wild Strawberries, um, Godard, Breathless, and Antonioni, Italian. And so after American movies like Under the Yum Yum Tree, <laughs> you know, the idiocy of early 60s American movies, comes these waves of European movies. And they were just incredible. They blew us away, changed movies forever. And that was sort of my coming of age. I started college in 1959 and started, you know, discovering uh, literature, well, literature in high school, but, uh, but these movies in college. And Roger Ebert describes how the first time he saw La Dolce Vita, he wanted to be uh, Marcello, who's you know, really uh, Marcello Mastrioni is the actor and Marcello is the character, really handsome. And he says, you know, wanted to be Marcello, who is a, a kind of a dissolute um Dissolute writer, he writes for the tabloids about, uh, you know, gossip columns for the tabloids, but, you know, wants to get back to working on his novel, uh, don't we all, right? And then Ebert said, next time I saw the movie, I don't remember the exact order, but <laughs> next time I saw the movie, I was Marcello. He was... Uh, uh, newspaper writer in Chicago, out late nights, going to the bars, the nightlife, and all that. And he said uh, the next time he saw La Dolce Vita, and he gives the years, so it's like every 10 years or 15 years, he says, um, I pitied Marcello, because Marcello's a really sad character. Um, he... Um, he fails at his relationship. He fails at being a serious writer. He fails at finding a home among intellectuals. He fails becoming uh, one with the aristocracy that he's hanging out with. He fails uh, uh, at religion. You see, he has a series of experiences um, which are all very coolly depicted in the movie, but they're all ultimately for him downers. And in the end, he's, um, you know, lost in a kind of debauchery. And so Marcello's, I'm sorry, um, Roger Ebert says, you know, and he was um, for a film course dissecting the movie frame by frame. He says, I pitied Marcello. And then he says, the last time I saw it, I loved Marcello uh, because, you know, the two of them had gone through the arcs of their lives together. So uh, that's a quality in movies. It's interesting to think about. And I think about the the actors that uh, I've watched uh, throughout my life, which leads me to one more thing before I get today's today's subject. I want to continue with my book list. But and there's one other thing I want to talk about, too. But last night um, I watched 
uh, Counterpart, new TV series, and it stars J.K. Simmons. So if you're uh, <laughs> a little bit older like me, you've, um, you may remember Simmons is the, is the police psychiatrist in Law & Order, one of them. Later, there's a woman. I don't know the actress's name. But when the police have to check out, you know, a suspect, is he insane? Did he know right from wrong? Uh, uh, what's going on here? They send him to J.K. Simmons, who then gives his report to the to the D.A. Uh, and so Simmons has had quite a career. Here he is, not classically handsome, uh, bald like me, um, and kind of jolly, uh, baggy uh, features, in no way a classical movie star playing a very minor role, you know, the kind of nebbishy shrink on Law and Order. But then he keeps popping up and role after role. He's right now doing the farmer's insurance ads. You might uh, you might recognize him from that if you don't, from Law and Order. And he did, for a while, he was the police commander on major crimes. And anyway, so he's the star in Counterpart. And um, I've only seen the first episode. I'm not sure if it's the first episode of the pilot. But uh, so I'm not, uh, you know, right away it's revealed that. Uh, no spoiler alert needed because um, it's what, you know, right away, the premise. What there, There's a uh, an American intelligence outfit in Berlin. And so they're in a big building. It's a big operation, super secret. You go through, you know, you go through scans and getting your briefcase checked and surrendering your cell phone every time you go from one uh, part of the building to another, that kind of um, security. And Simmons is playing a meek, mild-mannered operative who's been there 30 years. And as it opens, he's just not getting a promotion. He doesn't have the oomph, the gumption, the go-gettedness. And he's saying he deserves it because he's been there 30 years and he's never screwed up. And they're kind of trying to tell him, you know, you got to, you got, for this uh, uh, promotion, you got to show a little initiative. Well, it turns out that, and, you know, this is like not, you can't, impossible to believe, but you just accept the premise and the whole thing will work. And the premise is, that East German scientists during the Cold War did some experiment that went awry and opened up a parallel universe that you can get to through the basement of the security building. <laughs> and uh, these are, remember, these are the same people that brought us the Trabot. You know, the East German answer to the Volkswagen was this uh, plastic car that had a lawnmower engine. <laughs> It was the best the East Germans could do. But they can build a parallel universe. Uh, so anyway, that's the premise. Maybe we'll find out more about how that happened. But um, 
what happens is uh, this parallel universe is identical to our universe, but it starts to deviate. So little things like you flip a coin and in one universe it comes up head and the other comes up tails, you know, suddenly. And then these little divergences start to add up. So the uh, Simmons character from the other universe um, gets a pass. They, you know, the, only the top, top secret people know about this uh, and comes into this one and says, someone from our side has uh, broken into your side and he's going to assassinate people and we have to stop them. So that's the and so now we've got sitting in a room. Um, the meek, mild manner Simmons character, and the one from the other universe is kind of a hard ass. I mean, he doesn't put up with nothing. And uh, so you're going to see these two people, same actor, look identical. Um, 30 years ago, they were the exact same person, and now they've been deviating in their personality. And how did one get the way he is, and how did the other get the way he is, and what effects do they have on each other? So anyway, highly recommended TV series, Counterpart. And um, I'm just learning, I mean, I'm this, this, this technology stuff. I was the first person in my entire college to get a Macintosh, and but I'm still I'm so far behind on this stuff. Uh, I have a lot of websites, but I have techie set them up. You can go to johnlobell.com and then find some of my other websites. But turns out Counterpart is on um, what is it on demand? So. You just click, 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 and you can watch it any time. So I'm just learning how to use that. But anyway, that led me to think of, okay, these two characters, um, you know, they are, you know, what What happens if they were to make a, a duplicate of you? You know, they quantumly scan your body, and they pop up a duplicate. Actually, Arthur C. Clarke talked about that in a beautiful little book called Profiles of the Future. And the book's more than 40 years old. Maybe it's 50 years old uh, and totally readable today. Typically, you can't read books about the future that are more than 10 years old. I'm going to mention one in a minute that, you know, (laughs) this book's 10 years old. It's by super forecasters, and it doesn't mention, uh, you know, Facebook and the smartphone. So with that, it totally misses the boat. So, um, but this book by Arthur C. Clarke, he has a way of being able to get around that. And the way is to simply say, what are the range of possibilities? You know, like this is the future of transportation. On the one hand, uh, we could have mini pachyderms. You know, we could breed these. Uh, elephants are intelligent. Uh, they get along with people. You breed a mini elephant, and uh, it takes you to work. And you're high up. You get a good view. Uh, it can go amuse itself and pick you up, you know, knows what time to pick you up. And at the other extreme, you'd be teleported, like on Star Trek. He says, only problem is uh, teleportation 
if it ever were to exist. And actually, they talk about this in Big Bang Theory. But teleportation would not uh, scan you and would not, um, how shall we say, dismantle you, send you through a channel and remantle you. (laughs) It would scan you and then recreate you, you know, atom by atom. And the problem is would have to get down to quantum states. <clears throat> so it's very tricky. They've been able to um, they've been able to teleport a single particle. <laughs> we got a ways to go before we can do a person or an envelope. Um, but there's now two of you because it scans you um, and you're still there. And then it recreates you. Uh, now there's two of you, which is the real you. Which one gets the bank account? (laughs) Unless they can scan and reproduce that as well. So that's what's going on here. Which led me to think of philosophical zombies. Now, both of these Simmons characters are all there. You know, they are totally human, self-aware, have a memory, have a background. Unlike, what am I thinking of? Blade Runner, right, where uh, it turns, I don't want to, again, no spoilers here, but if you haven't seen Blade Runner, get it on your list and get there. But the when they create these, the clones in Blade Runner that the cops in the original Blade Runner and in the new one have to hunt down, uh, when they create these, they embed memories in them so they think they're real people. They remember being children, growing up, uh, playing in the backyard, but they're implanted memories. So there's another level where you have something, not a real person, but they think they are. Is that a real person? That then gets us to zombies. So um, I remember the modern notion of a zombie is from the movie Night of the Living Dead, uh, 1968. And it was uh, a movie shot on a $114,000 budget and uh, became a cult classic. It made 150 times uh, its earnings for 150 times its budget. Try to do that with uh, Star Wars. <laughs> uh, but anyway... They, um, this movie, you know, I was hanging out with cool people and uh, they said, we got to go to this movie. It plays midnight. Uh, I think the theater was on, around, you know, 6th Street and 6th Avenue, which is now a, uh, um, what do you call it, a film forum type thing, you know, where they show old movies and classics and et cetera. And so we go at midnight, and I'm not into horror movies. Uh, It's not my thing. But, you know, it was a great movie. Only thing was, I lived in an apartment, and it was a solid door. And I'd have to open the door and get the newspaper every morning. Well, for a month after seeing Night of the Living Dead, I couldn't open the door until I looked through the peephole. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's how scary it was. But anyway, that's the the creation of the modern zombie. You know, a satellite comes back. It's got a virus which spreads, and it creates zombies, which are dead people that can walk around. Their personality slowly fades away, and they stagger around, and they bite and eat other people. And if they bite you, you turn into a zombie. So that's a modern zombie. And whether it's Z Nation or, you know, the Brad Pitt movie or The Walking Dead, uh, they're all based on that premise, invented by George Romero, who uh, co-wrote the screenplay, directed, and filmed Night of the Living Dead. So it shows it can be done. You can make a great movie uh, with a... (laughs) There's a movie, what is it, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow with Jude Law that was, you know, pretty much guy made it on his Mac, his Macintosh. And I like the movie. Uh, I happen to think that Jude Law was the wrong choice. Should have been a more energetic, exuberant uh, star for the Sky Captain. But anyway, uh, so a philosophical zombie is... Uh, the notion is put forward by people that study consciousness and artificial intelligence, stuff like that. Suppose you, it's just a philosophical supposition. Suppose you had a human being, looked like a human being, sounded like a human being, acted like a human being, but there was no interior thought. It's a robot. Uh, and But if you poke it, you stick it with a pin, it says ouch, and it pulls back. But it doesn't feel pain. doesn't feel anything. But it behaves like a human being. Now, this is a philosophical notion that when people are studying consciousness, they say, would that be conscious? In other words, is consciousness defined as inner mental activity? And, and then there are arguments... Uh, is, is such a thing possible? Does it make sense? What about embody, embodiment of consciousness? And so that's what a philosophical zombie is. So that came to mind about these two characters on Counterpart, although they're not philosophical zombies. The idea came up. So one more thing before I see if I've... Oh, um, One of the reasons I thought about philosophical zombies, I want to mention a book uh, that I mentioned before. I'll re-mention it again. Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence by Max Tegmark. And it's the current book about AI, artificial intelligence. And, you know, that subject is coming up and lots of discussion uh, uh, you know, robots are on the way, self-driving cars. What happens when uh, <laughs> they become self-conscious and decide they don't need human beings? Uh, you know, as they say in the Terminator movies. So uh, what is artificial intelligence? The kind of thing where, you know, w- whether it's in a an android or it's in a box, or it's in the net, it's networked, uh, 
How how far off is it? Will it ever happen? And if you want to know the latest thinking in the field, Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. Now, Max Tegmark says something interesting. And he says he's he's pretty sure it's getting here. And, you know, they, they have the leading people in the field have occasional big conferences. Everybody's there. And they always take a vote. How many years off before whatever you want to call it, human level, artificial intelligence, and then you can argue whether or not it would have consciousness. And every time they have the conference, it gets a lot closer. You know, 20 years ago, they said, uh, well, 40 years ago, they said 10 years. Then uh, 20 years ago, they got realistic and they said 100 years. And now they're saying, you know, uh, five or 10 years, a lot of the people in the field. So, but, uh, and then, (laughs) how do we make sure, (coughs) excuse me, how do we make sure they don't decide they don't need us? (laughs) So I used to go to these conferences, and there was a character there as an organization to promote, uh, I think it's uh, Responsible AI, something like that, or Helpful AI, or you know, but it basically means non-dangerous AI. And I was thinking, well, what is with this guy? I mean, first of all, it's not going to happen for a long time. And second of all, who wants irresponsible AI? Well, it turns out he's suddenly in the center of a really hot uh, discussion because the general feeling is, I don't know if I agree, but the general feeling is it's here real soon and it could be really dangerous. If it decides it doesn't need us. Anyway, uh, one of the things that Tegmark talks about is he's pretty sure it's going to happen. It might happen soon, and eventually it's going to replace us. Now, you know, we've replaced other creatures. Um, There were dozens of hominids. Uh, The most recent before us was Neanderthals, but there were all kinds of hominid creatures that came out of um, East Africa that uh, pop, you know, moved through Europe and Asia and one after another died off. And you get to 30,000 years ago, the only one left, besides us, is Neanderthals. And then Homo sapiens, about 100,000, come about about 100,000 years ago. And about 40,000 years ago, start moving out of Africa into Europe and Asia, and the Neanderthals disappear, maybe exterminated by us. So why wouldn't AI do the same thing? Anyway, uh, that's another discussion. But Tegmark says, now, that's probably going to happen. And then he goes a little, waxes a bit philosophically poetic. He says, the universe is really beautiful. I mean, just look at the night sky, look at the stars, look through a telescope, look at Hubble photographs, um, look at nature, look at crystals, look at biology. Uh, There's just this incredible beauty. And, but is there? Uh, let's say that nothing's beautiful unless it's perceived as beautiful, right? Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. 
And you may find that beautiful, and I don't. So it's not beauty is not something in the object, in the stars, in the galaxies, in the universe, in the tree. It's in my awareness and appreciation of it, which might be different from yours. So Max Tegmark's fear is that we'll get Life 3.0, we'll get this uh, artificial intelligence, but what if it's zombies? What if it can do all this stuff, but it's not internally conscious, whatever that means? I might talk about that sometime because I have theories of what consciousness is, and I think that uh, the humanities have left it to you know, the computer scientists, and that was a big mistake. But in any case, um, uh, what if this artificial intelligence takes over, eliminates us, and what if we're the only intelligent life in the universe? Um, you know, there's uh, one of the key scientists. I don't know. Was it Schrodinger? Uh, no, it's one of the others. One of the key, you know, modern physicists has this uh, riddle uh, where are they? <laughs> you know, with trillions and trillions and trillions of stars, you think somebody would have been sending out signals for pi <laughs> at some point, and we haven't heard anything. So lots of theories as to why, but one possibility is there isn't any. We're it. And what if we're it, and then we're gone, and what replaces us uh, self-replicates, but it doesn't appreciate the beauty of the universe. So that's a concern of Max Tegmark. If, what if it's a zombie? It doesn't have an inner um, self-notion. Well, one more thing before I get to my books, and we might not even get there. Um, I just discovered something I'll talk about in more. Jordan Peterson, J-O-R-D-A-N, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N, and also you'll find him in searches as Jordan B. Peterson. And here's a guy who's right along my line of thinking. Uh, he thinks a lot like Joseph Campbell. He's influenced by, by Friedrich Nietzsche and by Carl Jung, as is, in fact, Joseph Campbell. And Got a different approach. Campbell looks at the world's cultures and mythology. Peterson's a psychologist, and he looks at, oh, sort of evolutionary and cultural historical backgrounds for understanding our consciousness, our psychology. And he was a clinical uh, psychologist. Well, he wrote a book, monster book, worked on it 13 years, Maps of Meaning, the Architecture of belief. You want to know why do people sometimes go off the deep end and get into weird ideologies. But the book is universally applicable. And I was reading uh, Camille Paglia, and she says, I just discovered Jordan Peterson. How could we have been on such parallel paths all this time and never heard of him before? Well, that's the way I feel. So I just found out about him. Somebody tweeted something about him, one of the my people I follow on Twitter. And I said, well, let's look this up. Well, he's got a new book out called 12 Rules for Life, an, an antidote 
to chaos. And the first book, Maps of Meaning, is not in audio. I can't read a book. <laughs> 100 pages, 200 pages? Are you kidding? Good thing I read a lot uh, when I was younger because I'm not reading so much now. So it's not on audio. I, you know, I'm listening to four, five books right now, and I have over 100 on my phone. I've got to get some of them off there before it runs out of memory, and several hundred on my computer. So I'm a big audio book fan. And my guess is uh, 12 Rules for Life will be on audio. It's not officially released in this country. So you can get it on Amazon. I have a feeling it's, it's officially released in um, Canada and England, Penguin books. And I, I think it's, it's officially out in a few days. So it'll be out shortly. Anyway, um, he talks about where our psychology comes from and what are we supposed to be doing with our lives. And that's what everybody talks about. That's the question, right? I like to say to my students, there's only one question. Who are we and what are we doing here? <laughs> I just summarized your whole philosophy course in uh, one sentence. So uh, Peterson uh, addresses that, and he does it from this depth of intelligence and literary awareness that Joseph Campbell had. And But unlike Campbell, he's got dozens and dozens of lectures he on YouTube. He videos his class, his psychology class. He's got a whole series on religion and approaching it from a very intelligent point of view. In other words, what is this all about and why do people believe this? And does it have anything, if we take it metaphorically, does it have anything to offer us today? Well, interesting thing about how to put it, how you get recognition so I wrote a brilliant book, uh, Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born. It's absolutely brilliant. And I think. <laughs> so you'll find it on Amazon. It sells a few copies. Why uh, hasn't it taken off? Well, it turns out, here's this guy. He was um, untenured at Harvard, didn't want to try for tenure there, took a tenured position in Canada. That's where he teaches. And he writes this book, works on it for 13 years. Again, Maps of Meaning. And it sells under 500 copies. My book did better than that. <laughs> Does better than that. Uh, and then something happened. What happened was he got at some event that got videoed. He got into an argument with a bunch of transgendered students about pronouns. Uh, the caveman nursed his baby in a cave. Well, obviously, that's not right. <laughs> the caveman nursed her baby in a cave? Uh, okay. Uh, cave people nursed their babies in a cave? Uh, the cave person nursed their baby in a cave. How, what, what do you do? Well, in, in my book, Visionary Creativity, uh, at the very end, I have a note on that. And what I did in my book is I used they and their. So um, 
if you want to say the artist must pay attention to his work. So um, what if it's a woman artist? Well, in the past, we just said his work. He must pay attention to his work. Uh, then, you know, they tried, well, he or she must pay attention to his or her work. Well, that makes some pretty messy sentences. Then you can say, artists must pay attention to their work. Well, now we're okay, because artists is plural, and they and they are plural. But um, with the excuse that Shakespeare and the Bible do it, which I say in my uh, end note, what I say is, the artist must pay attention to their work. Don't worry about uh, plural um, alignment. So that's one of the proposals at the moment, they and their, for he and his and his and her and all that. And in the past, people tried to make up, make up new pronouns. That's always flopped. It always sounds awkward. I didn't, and some people switch. You know, the, the, every other chapter will use him or her or he or she or every other sentence or every other paragraph. And I don't like that. And the reason is I'm reading he, 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 and then suddenly I see her. And I say, wait a minute, do we get a new character here? Have we entered, you know, because I'm a sloppy reader. I'm more in a dream state when I read than, you know, paying detailed attention. I go back, well, who's the her? When did she come along? Oh, they're switching between he and her. Well, that's no way to treat a reader. I mean, you've got, um, you've got, people are trying to get into the flow, you know, and not be aware of the page and the words. They want to be immersed in the ideas. So anyway, I use they and there. Doesn't bother me. So he gets to this big argument, and the transgenders are arguing they and there. Oh, and apparently there's a law in Canada that says you can go to jail if you don't use the pronoun that a person wants you to use for them. So um, he's so Peterson objects to this law in his lecture. And he says, I want to use he and her, you know, and the transgenders say uh, Shakespeare and the Bible. They didn't say the Bible, but they say Shakespeare uses they. It's in the Oxford Dictionary. You should be using it. And he says, if you want to use it, you use it. I don't want to use it. Uh, and then they say, you have to use it. He says, nobody tells me what I have to say. You know, we still have free speech, maybe not for long. So... They get into a real contentious argument. And he's playing the stubborn, you know, old white male professor, uh, and they're playing the hip uh, kids. And I went through that. I was, <laughs> 1968, um, the students took over my school. 1969, I was hired because uh, I was a cool guy. And the students loved me, you know, because I was cool and hip and contemporary. And um, but as hip as I was, there were students who would bait me. And I wasn't good at avoiding that. Eventually, I became better at it. But they would, you know, say something. I would disagree. Next thing, we were in a screaming argument. How did I let that happen? I'm the, I'm the adult. It's my job not to let that happen. 
Anyway, he did a good job of not losing his temper. But this encounter got videoed, put on YouTube, and to you coin a phrase, you never heard this one before, it went viral. It's got over 3 million views, and he's a monster mega hit cultural figure. Only problem is he's controversial, like in when he goes to give a lecture, people put up posters, flyers, comparing him to Hitler because he wants to use his and her rather than they and theirs. <laughs> so uh, I'm thinking, how do I get, you know, how do I get popular? How do, Actually, I've got 100,000 views of my YouTube, so that's not bad. I have 100 YouTubes up. And they're mostly uh, lectures from my architectural courses. A few on creativity, a few on art, a few on culture, but it's mostly art and architectural history. And, you know, 100,000 views ain't bad. I'm, I'm happy that the world appreciates me that much. But how about 3 million? How about people um, buying my book, you know, in huge quantities? Well, unfortunately, apparently the way you do that is you become very controversial <laughs> and get compared to Hitler. And then, uh, then you'll sell books. Anyway, I highly recommend Jordan Peterson, a wonderful literate uh, presentation of, of his ideas. And I, um, uh, I'll say, have more to say about him. I've listened to two or three hours over the weekend, and I actually was listening on the bus over here. So I've listened more, and I'll try to get him on the show. So we'll see what we can do. Well... Looks like we're running short on time. I'm John LaBelle. This is Visionaries, and we're here on PRN.FM every Monday from 10 to 11. And I want to remind everybody to get the PRN app for your smartphone. Then you can listen to me and all the other great shows. Catch Gary at noon on your phone with a set of earphones while you're going around the city. Well, what I was going to do today was go through my audiobooks. What I did is I went on to my Audible account. How are we supposed to feel about Audible? It's, a, it's, an, Amazon, it's an Amazon monopoly, right? <laughs> and interestingly, Apple got together with the major book publishers and went to do something to compete with Amazon and give the book publishers a better deal than Amazon did. And the federal government took over Apple. They now control Apple. The Apple was accused of exercising monopoly power, and now everything that goes on the App Store has to be approved by the government. So one by one, the government takes over these major companies. And, you know, we worried, oh, my God, uh, uh, Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon are going to take over the world. Yeah, but the government takes over them. Uh, there's a movie about that. Um, the Man Who Fell to Earth. Highly recommended. Look it up. Call me next week after you've watched it. Anyway, looks like I'll get to one or two books at the most. But I get my books from from Audible. Pay full price. Um, or you get a discount when you buy uh, 10 at a time. And 
I've gone through the last two weeks a bunch of books, about a dozen, and, and Catch Our Back shows, you can uh, get it caught up to date. I always appreciate it when someone recommends books because there are not that many really good ones. Uh, one of them that's pretty good, always, we always love Thomas Friedman. So Thomas Friedman wrote uh, a book called The World is Flat. And it's a few years back now, but it is it was a monster hit of a book. He's a regular columnist for the New York Times. I think he doesn't write a column anymore. He does he's an op-ed editor or something, but I think he's still at the New York Times. He did the Lexus and the Olive Tree about he was um Middle East correspondent for the New York Times, so about, you know, how is the Middle Eastern world facing modernism? And then The World is Flat was what happens, which is, you know, like two for 10 years now, as a result of the fall of the Soviet Union, the economic liberalization uh, and ending of socialist con- some socialist controls in India and the opening commercially to the West by China, suddenly three billion you know more people were thrown into the pot and uh, to be so for example, when your accountant does your uh, taxes, uh, your accountant can hire someone at fifty dollars an hour to do your you know, to work on the details of your taxes or hire an accountant in India to do it for 50 cents an hour. And they've got an MBA and years of experience. And, you know, we can scan the stuff and and Internet to them and no time email to them and no time flat. So what also what happened was the Internet, uh, the oh, the pipelines all that uh, dark cable came alive, and so that, boy, I remember when um, on AO, being on AOL on the phone line, you were paying by the minute. You could get a $200 phone bill from being on AOL, and now, you know, it's unlimited downloading movies for free. Anyway, um, what'd that do? How'd that change the world? Uh, that's the uh, Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat. He wrote a book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded, about global warming and um, overpopulation and globalism. And his latest book is Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. So there's a lot of people talk about our changing world, and uh, it's always been changing, at least for 300 years. And uh, is it changing more now than it did 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago? And maybe there's something that's happened just recently. It really is a big change. And a lot of books saying that. And Friedman is one of them. So the person who's really focused on that is Peter Diamandis, uh, founder of Singularity University and a bunch of other stuff. Again, you'll find him uh, him talking on YouTube. And, of course, the 
uh, futurist right now is Ray Kurzweil. But Thomas Friedman comes from the East Coast New York Times establishment world, <laughs> as opposed to these uh, Silicon Valley types. So, <clears throat> uh, pretty good book. Don't agree with all of it, but definitely, um, definitely recommended. Let's see. Oh, I have a book, Play All, a binge watcher's notebook by Clive James. Wonderful book. Clive James, have to check if he's still alive. Um, famous critic, movie critic, TV critic, uh, English. And he was diagnosed. He's not going to live that much longer. So I have to look up if he's still alive. But he got together with his daughter and he says, let's watch that stuff. <laughs> you know, Let's just spend the weekend watching all the Sopranos in one in one uh, one weekend. Let's watch The Wire. Let's watch whatever uh, uh, The Walking Dead. So <clears throat> binge and very intelligent discussions of these shows. So very recommended book. Wonderful. You know, this person has been our in our lives over the years and. Um, Wrapping up his life with this wonderful commentary on our culture of the moment. Try to squeeze in another one. The Kingdom of Speech by Tom Wolfe. Now, Tom Wolfe is in his 80s, and uh, I guess he's wrapping it up at the coin of phrase. Maybe not. Maybe he's going to turn out another monster novel. Actually, I think he is. But Tom Wolfe... Uh, as I came of age in New York, he was uh, began his career writing for the New York Herald Tribune, which the magazine section of which sort of became New York Magazine, and he pioneered what's called the new journalism, in which the journalist throws themselves. Ah, notice I said them, uh, his his or herself, themself, into the fray, describes. Uh, um, what's going on in detail, and has written a whole bunch of collections of essays. One of them is Hooking Up. Really love it. Uh, wrote about Marshall McLuhan. Anyway, this book, he talks about where speech comes from and takes on Noam Chomsky and Charles Darwin in speech, something that developed evolutionarily. Anyway, I think that's about all the time we have. So let's wrap up. This is John Lobel, and you've been listening to Visionaries. Uh, catch us next week, the week after. We've got some guests coming up. Um, and be sure to download our app for your smartphone. And see you next week. <laughs>